Well, it's a great pleasure to be uh, back at Southwestern Baptist Seminary to, to speak to you again. I want to thank Dr. Patterson for his very kind welcome. I hope you don't mind if I break with Southwestern tradition and don't give you a kiss uh, in gratitude for, uh, uh, for the welcome. Uh, my brief uh, over the next two days, I, I believe in giving the, the Day Higginbottom Lectures, uh, which are three lectures on a topic of my choice. I was delighted uh, when Dr. Allen got in touch with me last year and told me that uh, Dr. Patterson had embraced the Reformed faith and wanted me to give three lectures extolling the glories of the five points of Calvinism. So it's going to be a great two days. Uh, and seriously, it is a great pleasure to, to be here. Uh, I spoke at, at the other place, Southern Seminary, a few months ago, and I arrived at midnight there as well in Louisville, and uh, only to find they'd completely forgotten I was coming and hadn't sent anyone to pick me up. So I had to book into the airport hotel. It was great to arrive here at midnight last night and find that you'd sent not just one car, but two cars uh, to pick me up. So I already feel very spoilt and, and, and quite special. Uh, the topic uh, of my lectures, actually, it's not going to be the five points. What I want to speak on is the title for the series is Christianity and its Discontents. And I propose three lecture titles, uh, the first one, well, three lecture topics. The first one, want to address the issue of uh, plastic identity, plastic people. We live in a world where identity is now something that is no longer fixed, but is remarkably fluid. In the second lecture, I was intending to address the issue of what I call cultural amnesia, and that is the tendency in our world to forget or to erase the past. And in the third lecture, to address the issue of our flight from mortality, uh, the way we have eliminated uh, facing up to death in our culture. As I was preparing for these lectures, however, the first lecture on plastic identity kept expanding and expanding, so I suspect it may well bleed over into the second lecture or even become two lectures. So I may not keep to my original brief, but I do think the first lecture on plastic identity covers issues that are so important that it is vital that Christians have some grasp of what is going on in the wider culture. So we are able to, I wouldn't say necessarily engage the culture, I think the culture will be engaging us uh, in order to know how to respond, to understand the world in which we live. I want to start though by reading just a short passage from God's Word. I don't intend to preach, I do intend to lecture, but I want to read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and following, and it's really verse 24, the penultimate verse that is the one that we will ultimately come back to either in this lecture or in the second lecture this afternoon. Genesis 2, 15 and following. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. 
and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then this is the the verse that I'll be returning to. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. To introduce the topic then, I think knowing the times is a key to effective Christianity. We all know ultimately why bad things happen. Bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. And yet general explanations, as true as they are, are often very unsatisfying when it comes down to specifics. If I were to ask you, for example, why the Twin Towers fell down in September 2001 and you gave me the answer, gravity, that would be a, strictly speaking, correct answer. But it would actually give me very little insight into what happened that day. You would answer the question truly, but I would suggest you had not answered it adequately. In order to understand the specifics of the case, it would have been helpful to know something about the politics, the international tensions, the ethnic tensions, the religious tensions of the previous decades. And I'm going to suggest that when we look at Christianity in this current era, it is useful for us not simply to dismiss much that goes on in the world simply as the product of sin. We know that. That's a general explanation. What is helpful is to understand the specifics of why the problems we face manifest themselves in the specific way that they do. Some of the most interesting and helpful books that I've read over the last 20, 25 years have been written by David Wells, the series of books that he wrote on really on the impact of consumerism on the Christian church were immensely insightful into understanding why the church thought and looked the way it did and what was wrong with that. But it's become clear, I think, over recent years that consumerism is only part of the problem. Sexual politics. I think the role of sexual politics in contemporary society has emerged as perhaps the most significant issue to get a handle on in the contemporary world. And a couple of things I think are quite shocking about this. First of all, the speed of change has been breathtaking. When you think that uh, in 2008, uh, Rick Warren could just about get away with doing the prayer at the presidential inaugural, no chance... No chance that somebody with Rick Warren's views on homosexuality could have done it in 2012. Absolutely no chance. Republican or Democrat, whoever gets in. By the way, it's amazing to think, you know, who'd have thought that in a nation of 300 million people it could come down to Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton? Man, there's got to be somebody better out there than 300 million, one would have thought. But anyway, whoever wins, the Rick Warrens of this world... And those more conservative than them will not be welcome at the presidential inaugural. That change has happened remarkably fast. That what is by and large the universal consensus on the nature of marriage, that it should be between people of the opposite sex, has been overturned really publicly in the space of a decade, is remarkable 
and breathtaking. Secondly, I think the second shocking thing is the extent of the change. Those of you who have children at universities will know this. Gay marriage has been a decided and passe issue for some time. By the time the Supreme Court brought its verdict in its decision in last summer, the debate over gay marriage in the culture had really been done for some time. The culture had moved on to other things. Most prominently, I guess, last year, the issue of transgenderism with uh, Bruce Jenner being the poster boy for that. The extent of change, I think, is shocking, and it has caught the Christian church completely by surprise. So I want to explore why today. Why has this change happened so fast? I'm going to suggest the roots of the change were set up many, many decades ago. Many, many decades ago. I also want to make a distinction at the start here between what I would say is the pastoral issue of dealing with those struggling with various sexual issues in our congregations and the philosophical issue of the larger significance of the sexual revolution. And I do not really intend to deal much with the former. I think there is much going on in the Christian church that is attempting to deal properly and biblically with the issue of, for want of a better term, sexual dysfunction in the church. I think the pastoral issue is connected to, but separable from, the wider issue of the way sexuality is playing out in the culture. And I think we need to make that distinction in order to understand why some of our pastoral arguments don't cut it in the public square. I've heard some people say, for example, well, we're opposed to to homosexual sex, but we're also opposed to premarital sex. And they think that's a good argument in the culture. In actual fact, you're arguing about two different things from the culture's perspective. Arguing about premarital sex, you're arguing about the the, the illegitimate outlet for an otherwise legitimate thing. When the culture hears you say you oppose homosexual sex, you're opposing an identity. You're opposing an identity. You're saying that somebody's identity is illegitimate. And that is a much more powerful and provocative, and I would say politically significant statement than simply saying you don't believe people should sleep together before marriage either. My argument is going to be that the sexual revolution we are witnessing involves a fundamental redefinition of what it means to be a human person. And that those who engage in debates about homosexuality, transgenderism, etc., as if they are simply debates about the boundaries of legitimate sexual expression, miss that deeper point. That what we are really looking at is the redefinition of humanity on the basis of a redefinition of the meaning and function of sex. We're looking at a redefinition not an expanding of the boundaries, but a fundamental change in how sexuality is seen to function. The series title, 
Christianity and its Discontents is actually a play on Sigmund Freud's little book, Civilization and its Discontents. If you read Freud, it's one of the, the books to start with, really. It's about 100 pages long. You can read it at a single sitting. It's extremely well-written and punchy in its argumentation. And Freud's argument was really fairly simple. He was trying to explain civilization as the repression of individual instinctual urges, primarily sexual, for the creation of what we would call society or civilization. It was written in the aftermath of World War I. It was published in 1930. It was reprinted in 1931 in the wake of Adolf Hitler's stunning gains in the elections of 1930, where Freud added an ominous final sentence wondering whether love or death would win in Europe in the long run. It was written, in other words, at a time of great uncertainty. And I think that is the kind of time we live at at the moment. The future is uncertain. Will the sexual revolution continue? Will it continue to make its dramatic gains in wider society? And if it does, as seems likely, will civilization be sustainable? Can one sustain a civilized society where law courts are going to decide where, which uh, restrooms five-year-olds use in elementary schools? Can we sustain civilization when that is the kind of question that is facing us at this particular point in time? And I think the focal point of the revolution we're witnessing is the destruction of traditional Christianity as formative of personal identity. I think when you read the literature behind the sexual revolution, it is remarkable how frequently... Judaism and Christianity come up as the enemies that need to be overturned. Quite, quite remarkable. For Freud then, understanding what he would have called the neuroses of the human condition is the key to dealing with them. And I would suggest playing off that, understanding the neuroses of our times is a key for us as we know what to expect and how to deal with them. From a Christian perspective, we might say civilization always involves, to some extent, in a fallen world, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and knowing the specifics of how that suppression is done is useful to us. That brings me then to my first lecture, lecture one, Plastic People. I was tempted to call it Plastic Man. I'm a big Kinks fan, if you like 60s British, uh, British rock from the 60s, you'll know the Kinks plastic man who is of course the man who does not appear to be what he claims to be one of their great hits unfortunately I can find no connection with the lecture I'm giving so I just have to throw that in randomly right at the start but my thesis my thesis for my first lecture is this we need to understand that we are not witnessing a liberalization of traditional morality if that were so then we could argue about where the limits lie I wrote a little article this week on the issue of modesty. I said, traditionally, both proponents and we might say opponents of modesty have agreed that modesty is a legitimate concept one can debate about. Bathing suits versus bikinis. I put it over the speedos versus shorts. The limits of modesty are up for debate now. I think we live in an era where modesty itself is seen as an inappropriate concept and an oppressive concept concept. What we are seeing is the complete overthrow of the traditional metaphysics of morality, 
because we are seeing the complete overthrow of what it means to be a human person. And I think so much of the evangelical debate about sexuality fails to see the wider issues that are at stake. There is a place for books that debate the exegesis of biblical passages relative to human sexuality. But there's a sense in which that's an in-house debate. The debate in the wider world is not about biblical texts. It's about what constitutes a human being. So we need to understand, I think, the bigger story in order to understand the world in which we ourselves now live. First point, and this I think is fairly uncontentious, we live in a highly sexualized world. Just four things that I thought, right, there are probably many more out there, but there are four obvious symptoms of the way our world is now highly sexualized in a way it was not before. Pornography. Pornography is perhaps the most obvious. Pornography, it's hard to define. I actually think uh, the Catholic Catechism defines it uh, as well as anyone. If you want a good definition of pornography, look at the Catholic Catechism. It's hard to define, but we all know it when we see it kind of thing. Pornography has been a perennial of human existence. You go to Pompeii, you look at some of the wall murals uh, from the ancient world. Sexual activity depicted in explicit detail in some kind of publicly accessible forum has been a perennial of fallen human existence. But the ease of access and the prevalency of pornography now is unprecedented in human history. And I I doubt that there are many men on the face of the earth who haven't felt the temptation towards it at some point. And figures indicate that use of pornography among women is starting to increase. We'll come back to the significance of pornography later. At this moment, I simply want to indicate that it is a rampant problem. And any of you who are in the pastoral ministry or are heading towards the pastoral ministry will know that it is the number one pastoral problem that you're having to deal with on a remarkably regular basis. I turned to one of my elders a year or two ago uh, when a particularly nasty issue relative to pornography had come up in the congregation. Uh, It was an uh, an elder who was uh, in his 70s, and I said, could you ever have believed that you would be facing this issue in the church? And he just shook his head. Sure, pornography was around in the 40s and 50s, but it was not the... uh, epidemic, pandemic problem then that it is now. And it shapes the way people think. The accessibility of pornography, I think, has generated further markets for pornography. And it shapes the way people think about sexuality. Secondly, I think the role of homosexuality and same-sex attraction in the culture is an interesting one. Again, I would want to put the caveat in that this has been a perennial of human existence. Uh, Dr. Patterson mentioned that my my MA is in classics. Uh, One of the things, one of the the lectures I attended when I was doing my classics undergraduate at work was on the function of homosexuality in ancient Greece, particularly in Sparta. Sparta was kind of an odd society. The, The men and the women lived segregated lives. Uh, and what we would call homosexuality was pretty rampant among the men. And in fact, when uh, Spartans got married, uh, the women for the wedding night would have their hair cut short and would dress as men to make the transition much easier. 
It's kind of odd fact. Homosexuality is a perennial of human existence. But I think there is a difference today. Today, it's an identity. In the past, we might say homosexuality. In fact, we might say of sex as a whole. In the past, sexuality was an activity. Now it's an identity. And that shift is of fundamental importance. It's of fundamental importance. It is not the existence of these things that is significant. It is the function they fulfill within society as a whole, within political society as a whole, that is significant. Homosexuality. Homosexuality, the second uh, piece of evidence that we live in a highly sexualized world. Transgenderism. Trans- transgenderism. Breathtaking. To my father's generation, it was breathtaking that homosexuality would ever be legitimated. I think to my generation, it was breathtaking that transgenderism has been legitimated. And so swiftly. I applied for my, uh, to renew my to, to UK passport last week. I, uh, and one of the boxes I had to tick was I had to tick, why am I renewing my passport? And one of the boxes was because I've changed my gender. And there was even a little information thing I could click on the line and it would explain to me what gender was. Stunning. By the way, I'm ch- renewing my passport because it had expired. I'm not intending to change my gender. Uh, I will remain Carl, not Carol or Carla for as long as I'm able. At least until the government make it compulsory, I suppose. But, but it struck me as interesting that that's now so significant a question that it appears on a government document relative to passport application. And I'm guessing it's similar over here. I'm not a US citizen, so I don't know. But I'm guessing probably next time you apply for a passport. Not many Americans apply for passports, I know. But the next time you apply for a passport, you may face that question. And it's evidence of the normalization of something that even three years ago would have seemed strange. I'm going to come back to this later in the lectures, but just think of that statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I say that statement to you, and you all know what I mean. I think my grandfather, it would have just sounded like nonsense to him. Utter incomprehension would have met that question 20 or 30 years ago. There is a wealth of philosophy that lies behind that statement that makes that statement comprehensible. And then finally, I would suggest the sexualization of pretty much everything. Commercials, children's programs. The reason for the sexualization of children's programs will come to later. The debates about whether Bert and Ernie on The Muppet Show are gay. Quite remarkable. Quite remarkable that they would even be considered sexual beings. They're puppets, for pity's sake. But it indicates how sexuality is now so fundamental to identity that that question is a significant one. I was struck when I emigrated 15 years ago. I was struck at the difference in television between uh, America and and the United Kingdom. There was much more nudity on British television than certainly on uh, the networks in the USA, and I suspect that's still the case. But I would argue that American programs are more highly sexualized. They're more suggestive. Everybody's beautiful. Have you noticed, I, you know, America's the only nation on the earth where if you can't be a supermodel, you become a meteorologist. 
The weather girls in America are stunningly beautiful. Why? There's no connection between meteorology and physical beauty, but there is a connection between physical beauty and the values that the culture finds plausible and compelling. George Orwell in the 1930s made the comment in an essay uh, that there are no ugly people in American magazines. That was in the 1930s. Great thing about British television, full of ugly people. We have have terrible teeth. We don't have many plastic surgeons. You can always tell it's a British television program because the people look like the people you live next door to. But again, I think it speaks of a culture where sexualization is extremely important. So that, and then my first point, we live in a highly sexualized world. Secondly, the second point, and really this is where my, you know, my lecture starts to develop, I guess, why? What are the roots of this highly sexualized world? And I want to recommend a book to you uh, now. It's actually by, by pure happenstance. It is the 50th anniversary, 2016 is the 50th anniversary of the publication of this book. I think it's probably one of the most important books of the last 100 years. It is a book that was more prophetic and has spoken more truth than even the author could ever have anticipated. It is Philip Reef's book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. It is available, Uh, it's still in print. Um, I would recommend, it's not an easy book to read, but if you have not read it, buy this book and read it. It's 50 years old, and it predicts so accurately the shape of the world in which we now live. Philip Reef, just a little bit of background on him. He was one of the leading Freud scholars of the 20th century. I think he was the man placed in charge of the Freud archive in the United States. Uh, he made the terrible mistake as a, young, as a young academic of marrying Susan Sontag. If you know anything about Susan Sontag, you'll know that the marriage was almost certainly not going to be a happy one, and it wasn't. Uh, he ended his days as a professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. He was a Jewish scholar, Uh, and a man of remarkable insight. And his book, I think, is extremely helpful for allowing us to understand why we now find ourselves at the place we do. And Reef was what we might call perhaps a psychological sociologist. His interest was in looking at how people thought in particular epochs or eras of time. And with some simplification, he divided the history of man into four basic periods, looking at how people understood identity in four separate periods. He talked about political man, religious man, economic man, and then finally, and this is the world in which we now live, I think, psychological man. Let's look at this taxonomy a little bit. We'll come to more detail on psychological man, but Who was political man? For Reef, political man is the kind of, well, he's a representative of the kind of world one finds in the classical era. If you lived in 5th century Athens, you're an Athenian citizen, where would you find your purpose and identity? It would be in, you know, to use Aristotle's much misused phrase, in being a political animal, being involved in the polis. It would be your involvement in the business of the city. 
that gave you your value. That was what made you you. Being going to the assembly, being engaged in friendships and relationships within the city that served the common vision, the public vision. That would be what made you you. Notice that's an external thing. Your identity is not wrapped up in anything internal to you. We might also, with a, you know, it sounds slightly pretentious, we might also say that your identity is wrapped up with your body. Because bodies are how you, your body is how you interact with other bodies and become part of the polis, part of the political setup. That's important. Remember that phrase, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. What does that tell you about the importance of the body for identity at that point? So the first phase that Reed talks about is political man. We could say, as I say, 5th century Athens would be a classic example of that. Second phase that Reef sees really in the, as, as shaping very much the Middle Ages, religious man. Who is religious man? Well, religious man, religious men and women find their fulfillment and meaning in the active participation in the forms and rituals of religion. Just started yesterday uh, teaching my annual course on uh, the medieval church. And I love teaching the, the medieval, medieval course. It's, it's fun. Nobody goes to a Protestant seminary to do the medieval church course. You have to work that little bit harder to make it interesting. And one of the things I do to try to make it more interesting is I throw some literature in there. Get the students to read Njal's saga. Get them to look at the death of Arthur by Thomas and Mallory. Get them to read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Canterbury Tales, great story. Great stories there. I said, you know, how do you get... I remember as a 15-year-old boy being asked to read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And thinking, yeah, this just looks like bo this is boring. And the teacher said, read the Miller's Tale first. Yeah, sex and violence. That's what every 15-year-old boy is interested in. That's what the Miller's Tale is all about. But of course, the context of the Canterbury Tales is what? It's a pilgrimage. It's really a long party, social gathering on the way to pay homage at the tomb of Thomas Becket. It's a pilgrimage. These are people who find their meaning and identity in participating in the religious rituals of their day. Reef is he's not a Christian. He's not really interested in the truth value of these religious rituals. He's making the point that in the Middle Ages, one found one's identity by being involved in, again, public activities. Public activities. Religious man finds his fulfillment in the active, active participation in the forms and the rituals of religion. Notice the similarity with political man. It's an external thing. It is not that religious man finds his identity in himself or in herself. He finds it in participation in some common public activity. Third category, economic man. Now, economic man is where Reef sees the transition starting to take place. Post-Reformation, we see the rise of a new kind of person who finds his fulfillment in economic activity, in engaging in economic activity. Where the shift starts to take place here is that we start to see the value of happiness creeping into what it means to be a human being. 
particularly, I think, as Americans, where the pursuit of happiness is deeply part of American identity, it can be easy to forget that actually happiness was not, certainly in the modern sense, seen as a particular goal of humanity for many, many eons of time. Say to students uh, at Westminster, if, you have, you know, if you're one of those people who has, you, know, you find it too easy to get to sleep at night, you need to get hold of a medieval medical manual. It's not easy to be happy prior to the development of anesthetics and antibiotics. Happiness is a rather elusive value to search for in this fallen human world. With economic man, we see the beginnings of happiness as a category of human goal and of human identity. So although the identity is still found in a kind of public way, you engage in economic activity by making things, by selling things, by buying things, by investing, by relating to other human beings, it's beginning to shift a bit because happiness, personal fulfillment and contentment start to feature as the end goal of one's activity. And then finally, Reef sees the advent of psychological man. And with psychological man, we see happiness, personal happiness, emerging as the supreme virtue. And we see the way to achieve that as dealing with, we might say, our inner demons. There is a dramatic inward turn. With psychological man, no longer is our identity, we might say, primarily social. It becomes psychological. I can even see this without using Reeves' taxonomy. I could see this when I think of my own grandfather. My grandfather was uh, a relatively, my, my mother's father, a relatively poor man, but not dirt poor. He worked in a factory. He was a sheet metal worker all his life. He didn't earn a lot of money. But he was a satisfied and happy man because he put bread on the table and shoes on his children's feet. That for him was the purpose of work. The purpose of work was not for him, if you like, to have intrinsic satisfaction in what he did. It was the extrinsic satisfaction that came from what he was able to do for his family as a result of that work. The idea, you know, if you ask my grandfather, are you happy at your work? I think he'd have said, of course I am, because I put shoes on my children's feet and bread on the table. Today, I suspect, if you ask me, are you happy in your work? I'd probably say, well, 70% of the time, because I have to do 30% of my job as administration. I just find that boring. Notice the difference in the two answers. Notice the difference in the two answers. The one is external. The other is internal. And between those two answers, there is a wealth of difference in how we think of ourselves. What I'm painting here is a general picture into which I think we have to plug sexuality. Because psychological man, we might say, is now psychosexual man. Happiness is found through our sexual identity and activity. Reef has a lovely, a lovely way of putting it on, in, the, in the Triumph of the Therapeutic on page 30. He says this as a way of trying to draw a, a contrast between then and now. Formerly, if men were miserable, they went to church. And notice the reason why they went to church. So as to find the rationale of their misery. They did not expect to be happy. Today they go to their therapist. 
Happiness has moved into the position of being the end, the great virtue of humanity. As I say, happiness is really rather a recent idea. When you look back to 5th century Athens, Aristotle's idea, of course, is the virtuous man. That's the Aristotelian idea. If you look at the religious world, we might say the godly man. The great saints of the medieval church were generally not happy people. They couldn't possibly be happy in the modern sense, given all the stuff they put themselves through. They were held up as examples because they were godly men. The businesslike man of the economic world. But for psychological man, it is the fulfillment of personal desires and happiness that is the most significant thing. His identity, we might say, is wrapped up in his psychological subjectivity. And Reith goes on to say, actually, that he thinks America is peculiarly prone to this because of its rugged individualism, its emphasis on the individual, and its emphasis on happiness, the pursuit of happiness as a primary human activity. So that then is Reef's broad taxonomy. Where does psychological man come from? And how does he end up as being psychosexual man? Well, I think the roots of our highly sexual world, this is my third major point, lie way back. Think of romanticism. I think with this point I will end today. I will pick up the story uh, this afternoon. But think of romanticism. Think of what's happening in the romantic movement of the 18th, 19th century. You can look at music. I'm actually a classic rock man generally, but I do enjoy some classical music. You could listen to Renaissance polyphony. Some of the most beautiful church music ever produced is Renaissance polyphony. One can listen to Baroque music. One can listen to classical music, uh, like classical Mozart. When one listens to the late Beethoven, Beethoven's late string quartets, when one listens to Wagner, when one listens to Chopin, when one listens to Mahler, something is happening. The attention to structure and form is giving way to what we might say is a direct appeal to the emotions, an attempt to express the emotions. We see it in poetry. William Wordsworth, in his great autobiographical poem, The Prelude, says this, one of the great lines talking about his education. Fair seed time had my soul, and I grew up, fostered alike by beauty and by fear. Emotional, aesthetic categories are starting to kick in as powerful in the culture. In his preface to lyrical ballads, he says, talking about the purpose of poetry, he says, the feeling therein developed gives importance to the action and situation, not the action and situation to the feeling. Poetry is all about feeling. It's an inward turn. It is the inward life. It is the emotional response or quality which provides the real meaning to life. Human identity is becoming, we might say, a psychological thing at this point. This is not political man. This is not religious man. This is not even economic man. This is man defined by his feelings and by his response. And that image of man will grip the imagination 
and we'll find a pseudoscientific articulation in the work of Sigmund Freud, which will then go on to play into the politics that we now face today. With that, I'm out of time. If you want to hear further in the story, I think I'm lecturing again on this tonight at 7 o'clock. Thank you for listening so patiently to part one.